Once upon a time, there was a strange force of nature, someone who should have died a hundred times on glaciers, mountains, sheer cliff faces, once atop a pine in a gale, just to see what it felt like. In fact, indeed, possibly during his pretty arduous and wild Scottish childhood, or later during his incredibly arduous American childhood, this force was none other than John Muir, naturalist, mountaineer, geologist, and a writer whose words skim and sing and sparkle like a water oozel uh, skimming the surface of the falls. This is Dark History from the Secret University. I'm Richard Sugg, author of Mummies, Cannibals and Vampires. Fairies, A Dangerous History, and very shortly in a few weeks, Talking Dirty, The History of Disgust, from Jesus Christ to Boris Johnson. This is a special edition of the John Muir Challenge. Can John Muir carry you away into the summer wilds of the Sierra in 1901 in just 15 or 20 minutes? Let's see. This is from Chapter 5 of My First Summer in the Sierra. How interesting to trace the history of a single raindrop. It is not long, geologically speaking, as we have seen, since the first raindrops fell on the newborn leafless Sierra landscapes. How different the lot of these falling now. Happy the showers that fall on so fair a wilderness. Scarce a single drop can fail to find a beautiful spot. On the tops of the peaks, on the shining glacier pavements, on the great smooth domes, on forests and gardens and brushy moraines, plashing, glinting, pattering, laving. Some go to the high snowy fountains to swell their well-saved stores, some into the lakes, washing the mountain windows, washing the mountain-saved stores, patting their smooth, glassy levels, making dimples and bubbles and spray, some into the waterfalls and cascades, as if eager to join in their dance and song and beat their foam, yet finer. Good luck and good work for the happy mountain raindrops, each one of them a high waterfall in itself, descending from the cliffs and hollows of the clouds to the cliffs and hollows of the rocks, out of the sky thunder into the thunder of the falling rivers. Some, falling on meadows and bogs, creep silently out of sight to the grass roots, hiding softly as in a nest, slipping, oozing hither, thither, seeking and finding their appointed work. Some, descending through the spires of the woods, sift spray through the shining needles, whispering peace and good cheer to each one of them. Some drops with happy aim glint on the sides of crystals, quartz, hornablende, garnet, zircon, tourmaline, feldspar, patter on grains of gold and heavy wayworn nuggets. Some with blunt plap-plap and low bass drumming fall on the broad leaves of viratrum, saxifrage, cypripedium, Some happy drops fall straight into the cups of flowers, kissing the lips of lilies. How far they have to go, how many cups to fill, great and small. 
cells too small to be seen, cups holding half a drop as well as lake basins between the hills, each replenished with equal care, every drop in all the blessed throng, a silvery newborn star with lake and river, garden and grove, valley and mountain, all that the landscape holds reflected in its crystal depths, God's messenger, angel of love sent on its way with majesty and pomp and display of power that make man's greatest shows ridiculous. That was all, by the way, just two sentences. Now the storm is over, the sky is clear, the last rolling thunder wave is spent on the peaks. And where are the raindrops now? What has become of all the shining throng? In winged vapour rising, some are already hastening back to the sky. Some have gone into the plants, creeping through invisible doors into the round rooms of cells. Some are locked in crystals of ice, some in rock crystals, some in porous moraines to keep their small springs flowing. Some have gone journeying on in the rivers to join the larger raindrop of the ocean. From form to form, beauty to beauty, ever changing, never resting, all are speeding on with love's enthusiasm, singing with the stars the eternal song of creation. New day here, this is a uh, story told in diary form, it's July the 20th now. Fine, calm morning, air tense and clear, not the slightest breeze astir, everything shining, the rocks with wet crystals, the plants with dew, each receiving its portion of irised dewdrops and sunshine, like living creatures getting their breakfast, their dew manner coming down from the starry sky like swarms of smaller stars. How wondrous fine are the particles in showers of dew, thousands required for a single drop, growing in the dark as silently as the grass. What pains are taken to keep this wilderness in health, showers of snow, showers of rain, showers of dew, floods of light, floods of invisible vapour, clouds, winds, all sorts of weather, interaction of plant on plant, animal on animal, etc., beyond thought. How fine nature's methods. How deeply with beauty is beauty overlaid. The ground covered with crystals, crystals with mosses and lichens and low spreading grasses and flowers. These with larger plants, leaf over leaf, with ever-changing colour and form. The broad palms of the firs outspread over these. The azure dome over all like a bellflower and star above star. Yonder stands the South Dome, its crown high above our camp, though its base is 4,000 feet below us. A most noble rock, it seems full of thought, clothed with living light, no sense of dead stone about it, all spiritualized, neither heavy looking nor light, steadfast in serene strength, like a god. Our shepherd, is a queer character and hard to place in this wilderness. His bed is a hollow made in red dry rot, punky dust, beside a log which forms a portion of the south wall of the corral. If you didn't know the story, they're herding sheep and Muir has a pretty easy job uh, just accompanying the uh, shepherd and the sheep with a 
wonderful new, uh, sorry, not Newfoundland, St. Bernard dog, uh, Carlo, who's going to come into his own in a few moments' time in a pretty dramatic adventure, another moment which could have cost Muir his life. His bed is a hollow made in dry rot, punky dust beside a log which forms a portion of the south wall of the corral. Here he lies with his wonderful everlasting clothing on, fabulously dirty as uh, Muir describes elsewhere, wrapped in a red blanket, breathing not only the dust of the decayed wood but also that of the corral, as if determined to take ammoniacal stuff all, snuff all night after chewing tobacco all day. Following the sheep, he carries a heavy six-shooter swung from his belt on one side and his luncheon on the other. The ancient cloth in which the meat, fresh from the frying pan, is tied, serves as a filter through which the clear fat and gravy juices drip down on his right hip and leg in clustering stalactites. This oleaginous formation is soon broken up, however, and diffused and rubbed evenly into his scanty apparel by sitting down, rolling over, crossing his legs while resting on logs, etc., making shirt and trousers watertight and shiny. His trousers in particular have become so adhesive with a mixed fat and resin that pine needles, thin flakes and fibres of bark, hair, mica scales and minute grains of quartz, hornblende, etc., Feathers, seed wings, moth and butterfly wings, legs and antennae of innumerable insects or even whole insects such as the small beetles, moths and mosquitoes. With flower petals, pollen dust and indeed bits of all plants, animals and minerals of the region adhere to them and are safely embedded so that far from being a naturalist, he collects fragmentary specimens of everything and becomes richer than he knows. His specimens are kept passably fresh, too, by the purity of the air and the resiny bituminous beds into which they are pressed. Man is a microcosm, at least our shepherd is, or rather his trousers. These precious overalls are never taken off and nobody knows how old they are, though one may guess by their thickness and concentric structure. Instead of wearing thin, they wear thick, and in their stratification have no small geological significance. <coughs> Besides herding the sheep, Billy is the butcher, while I have agreed to wash the few iron and tin utensils and make the bread. Then, these small duties done, by the time the sun is fairly above the mountain tops, I am beyond the flock, free to rove and revel in the wilderness all the big, immortal days. This really was a dream job for me. Sketching on the North Dome. It commands views of nearly all the valley, besides a few of the high mountains. I would fain draw everything in sight, rock, tree and leaf. But little can I do beyond mere outlines, marks with meanings like words, readable only to myself. Yet I sharpen my pencils and work on, as if others might possibly be benefited. Whether these picture sheets are to vanish like fallen leaves or go to friends, like letters matters not much, for little can they tell to those who have not themselves seen similar wildness and, like a language, have learned it. No pain here, no dull empty hours, no fear of the past, no fear of the future. These blessed mountains are so compactly filled with God's beauty, no petty personal hope or experience has room to be. Drinking this champagne water is pure pleasure, so is breathing the living air, and every movement of limbs is pleasure, while the whole body seems to feel beauty when exposed to it as it feels the campfire or sunshine entering not by the eyes alone, but equally through all one's flesh, like radiant heat, 
making a passionate, ecstatic pleasure glow, not explainable. One's body then seems homogeneous throughout, sound as a crystal. Per perched like a fly on the Shizemite dome, I gaze and sketch and bask, oftentimes settling down into dumb admiration. Without definite hope of ever learning much, yet with the longing, unresting effort that lies at the door of hope, humbly prostrate before the vast display of God's power and eager to offer self-denial and renunciation with eternal toil to learn any lesson in the divine manuscript. It is easier to feel than to realise or in any way explain Yosemite grandeur. The magnitudes of the rocks and trees and streams are so delicately harmonised they are mostly hidden. Sheer precipices 3,000 feet high are fringed with tall trees growing close like grass on the brow of a lowland hill and extending along the feet of these precipices a ribbon of meadow a mile wide and seven or eight long that seems like a strip a farmer might mow in less than a day. Waterfalls 500 to 1 or 2,000 feet high are so subordinated to the mighty cliffs over which they pour that they seem like wisps of smoke, gentle as floating clouds, though their voices fill the valley and make the rocks tremble. The mountains too, along the eastern sky and the domes in front of them, and the succession of smooth, rounded waves between, swelling higher, higher with dark woods in their hollows, serene in massive exuberant bulk and beauty, tend yet more to hide the grandeur of the Yosemite Temple and make it appear as a subdued, subordinate feature of the vast, harmonious landscape. Thus, every attempt to appreciate any one feature is beaten down by the overwhelming influence of all the others. And, as if this were not enough, lo, in the sky arises another mountain range with topography as rugged and substantial looking as the one beneath it. Snowy peaks and domes and shadowy Yosemite valleys, another version of the snowy Sierra, a new creation heralded by a thunderstorm. How fiercely, devoutly wild is nature in the midst of her beauty-loving tenderness, painting lilies, watering them, caressing them with gentle hand, going from flower to flower like a gardener, while building rock mountains and cloud mountains full of lightning and rain. Gladly we run for shelter beneath an overhanging cliff, and examine the reassuring ferns and mosses, gentle love tokens growing in cracks and chinks. Daisies, too, and Ivesias, confiding wild children of light, too small to fear. To these one's heart goes home and the voices of the storm become gentle. Now the sun breaks forth and fragrant steam arises. The birds are out singing on the edges of the groves. The west is flaming in gold and purple, ready for the ceremony for sunset. And back I go to camp with my notes and pictures, the best of them printed in my mind as dreams. A fruitful day without measured beginning or ending, a terrestrial eternity, a gift of good God. Wrote to my mother and a few friends, mountain hints to each. They seem as near as if within voice reach or touch. The deeper the solitude, the less the sense of loneliness and the nearer our friends. Now bread and tea, fur bed, and good night to Carlo, a look at the sky lilies, and death sleep until the dawn of another Sierra tomorrow.
July 21st, sketching on the dome, no rain, clouds at noon, about quarter filled the sky, casting shadows with fine effect on the white mountains at the heads of the streams, and a soothing cover over the gardens during the warm hours. Saw a common housefly and a grasshopper, and a brown bear. The fly and grasshopper paid me a merry visit on the top of the dome, and I paid a visit to the bear in the middle of a small garden meadow between the dome and the camp where he was standing alert among the flowers as if willing to be seen to advantage. They are obviously supposed to be protecting the sheep from bears and wolves. I had not gone more than half a mile from camp this morning when Carlo, who was trotting on a few yards ahead of me, came to a sudden cautious standstill. Down went tail and ears, and forward went his knowing nose, while he seemed to be saying, Ha! What's this? A bear, I guess. Then the cautious advance of a few steps, setting his feet down softly like a hunting cat, and questioning the air as to the scent he had caught until all doubt vanished. Then he came back to me, looked me in the face, and with his speaking eyes reported a bear nearby. Then led on softly, careful like an experienced hunter not to make the slightest noise, and frequently looking back as if whispering, Yes, it's a bear. Come on, I'll show you. Presently we came to where the sunbeams were streaming through between the purple shafts of the firs, which showed that we were nearing an open spot, and here Carlo came behind me, evidently sure that the bear was very near. So I crept to a low ridge of moraine boulders on the edge of a narrow garden meadow, and in this meadow I felt pretty sure the bear must be. I was anxious to get a good look at the sturdy mountaineer without alarming him. So, drawing myself up noiselessly back of one of the largest of the trees, I peered past its bulging buttresses, exposing only a part of my head, and there stood neighbour Bruin within a stone's throw, his hips covered by tall grass and flowers, and his front feet on the trunk of a fir that had fallen out into the meadow, which raised his head so high that he seemed to be standing erect. He had not yet seen me but was looking and listening attentively, showing that in some way he was aware of our approach. I watched his gestures and tried to make the most of my opportunity to learn what I could about him, fearing he would catch sight of me and run away. For I had been told that this sort of bear the cinnamon always ran from his bad brother man, never showing fight unless wounded or in defence of young. He made a telling picture standing alert in the sunny forest garden. How well he played his part, harmonising in bulk and colour and shaggy hair with the trunks of the trees and lush vegetation as natural a feature as any other in the landscape. After examining at leisure, noting the sharp muzzle thrust inquiringly forward, the long, shaggy hair on his broad chest, the stiff, erect ears nearly buried in hair, and the slow, heavy way he moved his head, I thought I should like to see his gait in running. So I made a sudden rush at him, shouting and swinging my hat to frighten him, expecting to see him make haste get to get away. But, to my dismay, he did not run or show any signs of running. On the contrary, he stood his ground, ready to fight and defend himself, lowered his head, thrust it forward, and looked sharply and fiercely at me. Then I suddenly began to fear that upon me would fall the work of running. 
but I was afraid to run, and therefore, like the bear, held my ground. We stood, staring at each other in solemn silence within a dozen yards or thereabouts, while I fervently hoped that the power of the human eye over wild beasts would prove as great as it is said to be. How long our awfully strenuous interview lasted, I don't know, but at length, in the slow fullness of time, he pulled his huge paws down off the log, and with magnificent deliberation, turned and walked leisurely up the meadow, stopping frequently to look back over his shoulder to see whether I was pursuing him, then moving on again, evidently neither fearing me very much nor trusting me. He was probably about 500 pounds in weight, a broad, rusty bundle of ungovernable wildness, a happy fellow whose lines have fallen in pleasant places. The flowery glade in which I saw him so well, framed like a picture, is one of the best of all I have yet discovered, a conservatory of nature's precious plant people. Tall lilies were swinging their bells over that bear's back, with geraniums, larkspurs, columbines and daisies brushing against his sides. A place for angels, one would say, instead of bears. In the great canyons, Bruin reigns supreme. Happy fellow, whom no famine can reach while one of his thousand kinds of food is spared him. His bread is sure at all seasons, ranged on the mountain shelves like stores in a pantry. From one to the other, up or down, he climbs, tasting and enjoying each in turn in different climates, as if he had journeyed thousands of miles to other countries, north or south, to enjoy their varied productions. Interesting twist on the phrase air miles, which is, of course, long yet in the future. I should like to know my hairy brothers better, though after this particular Yosemite bear, my very neighbour, had sauntered out of sight this morning, I reluctantly went back to camp for the Don's rifle to shoot him, if necessary, in defence of the flock. Fortunately, I couldn't find him, and after tracking him a mile or two towards Mount Hoffman, I bade him Godspeed and gladly returned to my work on the Yosemite Dome. Thank you for listening. The John Muir challenge to carry you away into wilds and indeed the wonderful summer. Here is the British winter. This has been Dark Histories from the Secret University, Richard Sugg, completing this coming week and the following one, probably my new history of disgust on which I'll be talking on this podcast very soon. Bye for now.